0: As far as the steroids go, I, I I think there's guys that are good enough to be in the Hall of Fame if they didn't take them. So I think they're okay if they get in. I think there's guys that were only good because they took them.
1: Hey everybody, it's Justin Shackle welcoming you to episode 16 of Toe on the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. Every week we talk baseball with a heavy focus on The Art of Pitching. And we do it with the five-time World Series champ and Cy Young Award winner David Cohn, the master researcher James Smythe, and myself. David, the Hall of Fame voting announcement, it's coming up next week. And if you're wondering whether Hall of Famers themselves are debating about the same stuff that we are debating about between fans and media with guys like Bonds and Clemens and some others that are on the ballot, we get an answer from an inner circle Hall of Famer.
2: Well, yes. I mean, when, when you talk about, you know, the Mount Rushmore of, of pitchers from, from the 90s and 2000s, I mean, if you want to make, a, you know, a starting rotation, obviously you think about, you know, guys like Randy Johnson or Roger Clemens, some of the greats, uh, you know, to me, the, a guy that needs to be in that rotation, a guy that needs to be on the Mount Rushmore of modern-day pitching is Greg Maddox. Maybe the best craftsman I've ever seen. He didn't throw the ball 100 miles an hour. He did it on, uh, on guile, on movement, uh, the way he, he set up hitters. Uh, his impeccable control and command of all of his pitches, maybe the best all-time control and movement pitcher I've ever seen. I, you know, I've always said that Mariano Rivera was the best relief pitcher when he, you combine movement and velocity, those two things together along with precision. You know, uh, it, Mariano Rivera had those three in spades. And nobody was like him. Greg Maddox, same way. He's the just like Mariano Rivera in terms of his precision, his movement. And he threw harder than you. he's been given credit for. When he first came up with the Cubs, he was in the low and mid-90s with that type of movement. Those two seamers that started at the hip of left-handed hitters and ran to the inside corner. Uh, you know, he everybody talks about finacity through soft. And Maddox had good stuff. When you combine the movement and the location, you zip a 93-mile-an-hour fastball with that kind of movement on the inside corner, it's unhittable. Yeah, All the hitters I talked to from Paul O'Neill on down talk about, I can't hit that pitch. I can't do anything with that. And Greg Maddox rode that particular pitch all the way to the Hall of Fame. He is without a doubt one of the greatest pitchers I ever saw. If you're making up a rotation or the Mount Rushmore, like I said before, Greg Maddox is, is on that list. He's on that Mount Rushmore. Uh, certainly the best craftsman I've ever seen. and and certainly have a lot of admiration for as I competed against him. And we were contemporaries. We came up uh, together in the minor leagues and all the way through, he lasted a little longer. He started sooner and came to the dance sooner and lasted a little longer than I did, but I certainly was there for the bulk of his career. And and I'm a big admirer of his work.
1: He he also had a a pretty distinguished sense of humor among the players that you will find in a baseball clubhouse in the eighties and the nineties. But some of the things you mentioned, just, the achievements and the longevity in which he, he did it all in. I feel like, James, this is right in your wheelhouse. When you deep dive in the numbers of Greg Maddox's career, there are so many interesting things that you can find and discover. What really jumps out to you when you try to examine the career of Greg Maddox?
3: Well, Cody's right that it, you know, he belongs on that Mount Rushmore of, of modern, you know, all-time great pitchers. There's, there's really there's no end to it. You can can dive in and he's top 10 all time in wins. He's got four Cy Young Awards, got a World Series, all those gold gloves. He averaged 230 innings for about 20 years. Something you don't see guys do one time anymore. So he's really one of the best pitchers of all time. He he had the the combination of dominance and durability. And Coney mentioned... You know, he wasn't just a, a soft tosser. He actually wrapped up a lot of strikeouts. Um, 3,371 in his career. And his strikeout rate was at or above league average for pretty much his entire prime. So he wasn't throwing hard, but he was dominant. And
1: we're going to get into everything with Greg. Uh, like we mentioned, the Hall of Fame, you know, he touches on movement, changing speeds his entire career. I, obviously, this is a pitching podcast. We're all passionate about pitching. Some more involved than others, obviously, on here. But guys, one of the big reasons why I think I am as passionate about pitching as I am is I've, I've been a very blessed fan. I've, As a fan, I've, I've you know working as part of the media for almost a decade now. But as a fan, I've seen a perfect game in person. I've seen a no-hitter in person. And I've seen a Maddox in person and the Maddox was the first one I witnessed. And you know, if, if you're unfamiliar with what a Maddox exactly is, people have kind of, it, it's, I don't know if it's an official stat, but it's pretty, pretty slang. You know, it's, you know, street terms and baseball circles. If you throw a complete game shutout and you do it within a hundred pitches, it's technically called a Maddox because he was the guy that was his signature efficiency personified with Greg Maddox. And I witnessed that on July 2nd, 1997. It was right at the advent of interleague play. And the Braves beat Doc Good and the Yankees that day. I think it was like a 2-1 final. And we were in and out in two hours and eight minutes. And he needed all of 84, 86 pitches to to get it done. So I consider myself pretty blessed. I've seen a perfect game, a no-hitter, and a Maddox.
3: So Maddox had – it was a three-hit shutout uh, on 84 pitches. And um, let's see here. It was a 2 nothing final uh, in, that, in that game. And the Maddox stat, you see it more and more uh, – talked about more and more. But Jason Lucart is the writer who coined the phrase. And now on MLB.com in their glossary of terms, one of the entries is for the Maddox. So I think that kind of legitimizes it as as a uh, as it's official
1: now. Yeah, if it's on the league's website, it's a recognizable uh, accomplishment, achievement, a stat right there. So we ask him about that as well. A lot to get to with Greg. Let's open the show here with the opener. David brings up a topic that he likes to discuss and open the show with each week. What do you have for this week with the opener, David?
2: You know, I'd I'd like to guide everybody to a great article that I I read in GQ magazine by Daniel Riley, and it's on the great Shohei Otani, and what a superstar he is. I mean, even even Commissioner Manfred gave him a special award this year for historical achievement from what he did as a pitcher and as a hitter this year. Very rare award given out, much less the guy who was the best player, you know, obviously the MVP of the league uh, with his combined stats. So, I just found it interesting, you know, his perspective as, as, as a young kid in this game, um, uh, that, that he really loves the game, talks about internationally how popular the game is in different countries, in Japan, Korea, all of Latin America. The Caribbean World Series is getting ready to get teed up in Latin America, which I played in, uh, you know, back in the 80s. It's an exciting time, Latin American baseball. So, you know, the, the emphasis you know, when you have baseball discussions now is uh, what's wrong with the game? What rules need to be changed? We need to get more action in the game and everybody's got an opinion. And certainly, you know, I'm, I'm open to debate about this issue. But I think the thing that's o- often overlooked is what's right about the game. There's so many good things about the game. Uh, Shohei Otani is is one of those really great things about the game, along with a lot of other other very talented young players. They asked Shohei Otani and this in this article on GQ what he thought about the game and what changes need to be made. And he said, absolutely nothing. I like the way the game is now. I mean, there's so much talent, so much power in the game. And yes, is it different than what we grew up on or maybe somebody who's post 50 years old, uh, what they grew up on? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's different, but there is a lot more power. There's a lot more talent. The game tends to, The game tends to work itself out no matter what humans try to do to this beautiful game of baseball the game kind of takes care of itself and regulates itself. And, and I guide you to the, the GQ article uh, on Shohei Ohtani this year. or this. I guess it's over the last uh, couple of weeks ago it was in there. Uh, and Daniel Riley did a great job, the writer for GQ, on uh, showing us Shohei Ohtani, an inside look, an in-depth look that who he is, what he's all about, how he grew up, and then what he thinks about the state of the game today. I think it's pretty refreshing that uh, that he talks about what he likes about the game instead of, you know, what, what we normally uh, view as a conversation that's tilted towards uh, all the, everything that's wrong about the game. Because there's a lot right about the game, and Shohei Otani is a big part of that.
1: Yeah, I'm a big believer in being able to say, hey, I love baseball. But there are also things that I believe need fixing, right? I, I, I subscribe to that notion. But I also think you, you hear a lot of people say in any topic that's being covered, hey, you know, read the room have a little self-awareness. I think baseball, the community, could do a better job of reading the global room, so to speak. If you have someone like Shohei Otani, who from where he comes from and how they view the sport, that obviously matters just because it's not Major League Baseball. it, It doesn't mean that it doesn't carry any weight regardless of what league they're playing, the sports, the sport, like you said, it kind of regulates itself over time, no matter what kind of tweaks people tend to incorporate. I think it is refreshing, and I think it should remind us to open our eyes a little bit more, take a step back when we're thinking about the next thing that we we want to say that's negative about the game. Think about what's good, but also realize that there's a lot of different perceptions around the globe because it is a global sport.
2: That's exactly the point. Absolutely. The point. Well said, Justin, I could not agree more. And uh, you know, it's, we love, we love the game here on toe in the slab, you know, and we're in the broadcast booth. Uh, certainly we have that feeling now. I'm happy to be there. I'm, a, I'm excited about what the game's going to bring. And you know, you certainly love the players too. the current players. I think, are I think we're in good hands, guys like Aaron judge and Shohei Otani and Mike Trout and the list goes on and on. We're, you know, Acuna Jr. uh, coming back from an injury for Atlanta, the World Series champions. The list goes on and on about players to get excited about and the level of talent that they're bringing to the game.
1: There is one thing that happened over the last week that doesn't generate a lot of excitement. It's uh, centered around the labor negotiations, and they picked up last week, guys, and the league gave a proposal. The players, from everything that you read, felt that it was – underwhelming and now we wait for a counter proposal and that's going to be happening at the date to be determined right this is this is what is going on and it's what's going to be going on for several weeks the proposal ping-pong between the league and and the players union and many felt like the tone of the the league's proposal last week automatically means that we're certain to have to alter the schedule for spring training or the regular season and i i don't buy that yet call me an optimist I just don't see it that way just yet. But here is what I wonder. And it's something that I did kind of want to throw your way, David. The owners see the players wanting a bigger slice of the pie. The players see a a bigger pie and wanting to adjust their slice accordingly. From an ethical standpoint, should that happen? Absolutely. From a business standpoint, in my opinion, the reality of that is that it's not going to be happening overnight. It's not going to happen through one CBA. the The league is not going to concede to all of the union's demands in one CBA. And I've said this before. I want to restate it because I don't want people to think, oh, you, oh like you know, you're you're against the union here. Well, no, no, I believe in athletes maximizing their ability to earn. They have a small window to do so in their lives. They should be able to pick up every cent. But in this setting, I fear that the union will want all of their proposals met because of the shortcomings in prior CBA negotiations. And I don't think that's realistic in a business sense. So, David, do you agree or disagree with that from a business and negotiating standpoint?
2: Well, you know, I I certainly understand the sentiment that, you know, there's give and take and what you want to see is good faith bargaining on both sides. When you, when you go to the bargaining table, that both sides are negotiating in good faith with an understanding that uh, there's varying interests and those interests might not, uh, might bang heads, so to speak, and, and not match up. But nonetheless, you want good faith concessions made on both sides. And, you know, for the players, it's, it's not so much, you know, and I say this all the time, you know, the, 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 the notion that it's billionaire owners versus millionaire ball players and there's enough money there. Why can't they figure it out? I certainly understand that from a fan standpoint. But for me, it's really about control issues. The control issues of the players are, are really front and center because of service time manipulation. Holding players back in the minor leagues that are ready for the big leagues just for the purpose of extending their control years another year. So that affects two things. Arbitration players that aren't able to go to arbitration until their third year and then free agency players aren't able to be free until after six years. Those sorts of those two benchmarks need to be addressed somehow, some way they were addressed in a very small way by the, by the management side on this offer back to the players about trying to funnel some sort of bonus money back to the younger players, whether they're two plus service time years or not. But, you know, if you think about, you know, Surplus value. The owners have really perfected uh, surplus value, and 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 enabling all of their teams to use that to to the to the maximum. Uh, you know, and it's you know, there's a super two category between two and three years of arbitration, but most of the players up till three years of service time and make pretty close to the minimum wage. And when you there's a difference between average salary and median salary. I and mean, you look at all the players. You know, a high percentage, 60, 70 percent of players that make closer to the minimum wage than make what they would what they would be worth if they had arbitration. That's a big difference there. So it really comes down to control for the players and addressing the control issues and being able to get younger players paid sooner in their career and being able to have meaningful free agency after six years in an industry that devalues players that are 30 plus years or older. So that, that that impacts free agency and, be, and being able to find out what you're worth. So control is really the issue for me on the player side. Right.
3: So Travis Sawchick of The Score, he broke down the numbers uh, pretty recently um, using 2019 uh, numbers from the most recent year with complete data. 63% of the players had less than three years of service time. That made up 54% of the service time in major league baseball but yet they got under 10% of the pay. So it's about kind of tipping those scales back which could be addressed by, you know, shifting the timelines on arbitration and free agency which the league going into the expiration of the CBA said were completely non-negotiable. Have what kind of changes can we get out of that during this off-season period and see where we how we can go over the next few years.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm hung up on, the free agency, the arbitration, the attempt to shorten both, both of which the league, James, like you said, the league says it's a non-starting point. So like, how, do you, how do you break that dam between those two? If those are the two most important, and obviously the league feels the same way because they're saying, oh, they're untouchable, how do you, how do you massage both sides in order to find an entryway here?
2: Yeah, I guess if you go back to the end you have to to the beginning you have to understand a little bit of the history and without getting too much in depth I can tell you that you know after Kurt Flood after Andy Messersmith when the reserve clause was finally challenged and broken now here we are we got to create a new system Marvin Miller gets together with the management side and they develop a new system that was created that we enjoy today and rather than having uh, players a free agent after every year Marvin Miller said, because of supply and demand economics, we need to kind of uh, spread this out a little bit. So the arbitration system was created so that the staggering of players becoming free agents uh, would increase their value, so to speak. So if you're on the management side and there was an offer made, you know what, Uh, after three years, let's just have players be uh, free agents. Let's trade the arbitration years for free agency. So after three years, players are free agents. Theoretically, Supply and demand economics would dictate that there would be more players that are free agents on every, any given year, and therefore the value would come down. So if you're the management side, you'd have to think twice about that. Maybe, maybe that would be a better system, that you'd have more, more players that are free agents more often, and maybe the, maybe the, you know, the, the value would come down a little bit, you know, just based on, as I said before, basic economics. So that was the thought back then. Um, the big deal was after two years, there was arbitration. Now it's three years or super twos in the middle, uh, six years for free agency. The players would like to get that down to five years, mainly as a counter to what the owners have done on service manipulation on the time before they even get to the big league. So these are all issues of control and when players should be free agents, uh, can they get to that point and still have meaningful free agency, you know, for the players, it's always been. At some point in time, let me find out, you know, what I'm worth, and let me choose where I want to work. And sometimes that's after 12 years, six years in the minor leagues, and six years in the major league. So, you know, I can't re- reemphasize that anymore, or reiterate that anymore. That it really is not for the player's side about making more money. It's not about demanding more dollars. It's about at what point am I free? At what point can I, you know, get paid fair market value? At what point can I choose where I want to work? That's really what it's always been about the players. It's, for the players, it's been about rights.
1: This leads nicely into our talk with Greg Maddox because he was a guy who had had his choices right. Nineteen ninety-two, a free agent uh, right after that ninety-two season, and when you take a look at some of the ripple effects, I guess when he signs a five-year deal for twenty-eight million with the Atlanta Braves, he kind of goes down in history as one of the best all-time free agents based not only on that initial deal, but also subsequent deals with the Braves as well. And a big reason why they reeled off 14 consecutive division championships. So uh, let's get to Greg Maddox here on toe in the slab, the hall of famer, 2014 inductee, a terrific right-hander built on movement, changing speeds. And I think guys, one of the best at taking advantage of every tool, in his toolbox, right? You, you think about the gamesmanship, the psychological effects as well. Like how, how rare David was a pitcher utilizing all of that stuff back in the eighties and nineties?
2: I mean, he was, you know, not only that, you know, you talk about all the gold gloves. So a guy who was a sinker ball pitcher that thrived on ground balls and putting the ball in play was also a, a wizard on the mound at catching ground balls back at him. Just amazing how quick he was. His his mechanics, his throwing motion. A guy who never spent one day on the the disabled list or the injured reserve list. All those years in the big leagues, posting up every day, fielding his position, doing all the little things so well. Uh, you know that's that's the guy you model after. This is the that's the throw like him, field like him, and have the same outlook as him. You'd be pretty good if you want to emulate that style and the way he went about it. For longevity, for consistency, you know, that's what he always talked about. He was more worried about start to start being consistent than he was, uh, you know, what what's my ERA or what's my one loss record. It's being reliable, being consistent. That that's what separates great big league pitchers from you know average big, big league pitchers.
1: Yeah, we had Glavin on before. We have Maddox on this week. Two guys that are like in the top twelve of career starts, and there's there's a common theme right there when you talk about durability, being reliable. Going out, taking the ball every day. Those two have done it. Big reason why they are uh, they're in Cooperstown here. So without further ado, our guest this week, the Hall of Famer, Greg Maddox on Toe the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. Greg, thanks so much for coming on the show with us this week. And in and, and trying to you know, get you to come on, David kept telling us, hey, Greg's in. It, it just needs to be later in the day because he's on the West Coast with the East Coast, West Coast time swing. But also because he golfs. So, you know, for me, I'm saying to myself, does, does Greg Maddox literally golf every day? I mean, that's pretty cool if, if you're into golf. I'm, I'm also told myself I wasn't going to be cliche and I asked the guy how his, his golf game is. I'm not a golfer. I'm not really interested. And then just kind of preparing for this chat here, I'm being reminded like how ridiculously easy you made your craft on the mound look all those years with the amazing command, the, the gold glove awards. And I said, wait. I think I am a little interested in knowing how Maddox is at golf. like Does he make it look easy on the course? So yeah, I'm curious. Are are you bad at anything that involves athleticism?
0: Well, you know, g- g- golf's a whole different beast. Uh, you know, I, I, I enjoy playing uh, when COVID hit, it's really about all you can do. You know, everything shut down, but the golf courses. So I kind of got into golf a little bit more than I have been in the past and uh, something to do it's retirement for me. It's my way to stay active and, you know, try to stay in shape a little bit. And I enjoy playing. I enjoy the friendships I've made on the golf course, all that stuff. So it uh, gives me a reason to get up and get out of the house every day.
1: All right. So how good are you? I will be that guy. How's your golf Well, I mean, I'm,
0: you know, it's like you would think as much as I play in practice, I'd be better, but it just doesn't transfer over. But uh, uh, I think my handicap right now is between four and five. And, uh, you know, I enjoy playing, but I feel like I should be better at it. Who doesn't? You know, anybody that plays golf always thinks they they should be better at it. I'm no different.
1: David, have you played a round of golf with Greg?
2: No, I played with Glav. You know, I I think Smolty's obviously, of the three Hall of Famers on the Braves, you know, legendary trio together. I think Smolty's probably the guy. And he talks about it, too. Maddox has got some great stories, I'm sure, about those two guys. But we had Glav on before on, on the podcast and you know, I, I said to Glad at the same time, the thing I'm jealous of is all the great courses you got to play. I mean, playing for the Braves, how many times did you get on Augusta? How many times did you get a chance to play that course?
0: Yeah. Yeah. We had, we had, we were fortunate, you know, uh, Smoltz, pretty good pitcher, you know, uh, obviously, (laughs) but a tremendous golf coordinator, way better golf coordinator than he was a pitcher by any day of the week and twice on Sunday. So uh, uh, he took care of us. He had it all set up and, uh, you know, it was just kind of a joke. You just look at him and he'd go six o'clock lobby in the morning, and you're like, Well, okay, I'll be there at six. Hey, where are we going? You know, and it was always it was always someplace off the charts good.
2: Not surprising, that's for sure. sure. I mean, you know, I that's the thing about being a starting pitcher. I still say it's the best job in the world because you pitch mm-hmm. once a week and the other the other days, you know, you you you, know, you yeah. do your work or whatever, but you got some time, you got a lot of dead time. I mean, we Greg knows this, we Absolutely. get to play. 35 times a year we get to pitch and we get to play in a game about 35 times a year around give or take so
0: you're out there about, probably about an hour every five days the yeah. time you spend on the field it's like an hour
1: <laughs> right. uh, you especially yeah hour or less um you know th- yeah. thorough and complete game shutouts under 100 pitches I mean they have a name for that now uh obviously called a Maddox I, I you know I guess if, when you were out there throwing those complete game shutouts, less than hundred pitches. Was that like the ultimate sign of accomplishment for you in an individual performance?
0: Well, back then it was no big deal. I mean, uh, you know, we kind of, I'm sure David came up the same way I did, you know, you kind of go as hard as you can for as long as you can and you hope you're out there for the ninth inning. You know, I think the mentality was a little bit different than when we started as opposed to when we finished. And uh, you know, you always wanted to try to get 27 outs that that kind of was the ultimate goal. Before the before the game started, obviously you want to win the game, but at the same time you want to get all twenty seven outs. And uh, honestly, you don't care if it's ninety pitches or one hundred and twenty. You know, it really doesn't matter as long as you get the win. That's kind of that was kind of the purpose back then.
2: Yeah, you know, we've got James Smythe here, uh, you know, Greg, and we work together on the Yes Network, and kind of a historian and statistician, and a little bit of everything. So, you yeah, know, this is the part before we get into some. The, the meat and potatoes here. I would like to turn James Schmeich loose and give us a little context on on Greg Maddox, his career, what, what he's been to the game.
3: Sure. One of the best pitchers who ever lived the end. No, um, <laughs> 23 MLB seasons, four straight NL Cy Young Awards from 1992 to 95. The last of those seasons ended in a world series championship, 18 gold gloves, most by any player at any position, 355 wins. So the 300 benchmark is is thought to be, you know, automatic Hall of Famer. And people wonder, is that ever going to happen again? 355 wins, eighth all time. Baseball reference war, 104.8, also eighth all time. So if a pitcher has a Cy Young caliber season, like 20 wins and six war, if you did that for 17 straight seasons, you'd still be short of where Mad Dog's at. And here's an underrated thing. 5,008 and a third innings pitched. In his major league career, 13th all time, seventh in the live ball era, Greg averaged 230 innings over a 21-year stretch. It's insane. First ballot Hall of Famer in 2014, fittingly, with longtime manager Bobby Cox and uh, teammate and friend of the show,
1: Tom Glavin. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, 355 wins. We talked about this with Tom Glavin. How many of those do you think, Greg, came on days that you had your A-plus stuff?
0: Uh, well, that's a good question. You know, I'd, I'd like to say at least half of them, <laughs> you know, it's uh really hard to say, you know, I think, uh, you know, as, as David knows, you can go out there and, and have your A stuff and get beat two to one. And other days, you know, you can go out there and your team puts up, you know, eight runs for you and you know, a freaking monkey could go out and win that game. So, uh, you know, you just try to remain consistent throughout the year and, and honestly, just, I try to keep it as simple as possible. And really the only thing I try to do was get the next guy out and, you know, the game would dictate how you go about doing that, but, you know, just trying to get the next guy out and just repeating that process over and over is kind of how it happens, you know, to be honest with you.
2: You know, you know, back to the beginning, you know, Greg, Greg knows this, you know, we played against each other in AAA. He was in the Iowa Cubs. I was with the Omaha Royals and, and I was with the Mets. He was with the Cubs and, you know, there's, there's a couple of things. One is stylistically. I think this is what made you the trailblazer. And I had a lot of old-time pitching coaches. Anytime I tried to throw a two-seam fastball inside to a lefty that you featured, or away to a righty, you call it glove-side two-seamers, it was frowned upon. They told me you can't throw that pitch; it's going to drift towards the middle of the plate. You broke. You were the trailblazer. You yeah. and Hershiser really were the trailblazer yeah. that showed showed a different way that you can you can do this. And a lot of old-time pitching coaches were frowning the whole time. And, yeah. You know, thankfully. You know, you,
0: you blazed a new trail. I, I heard it a hundred times, too. You can't pitch a lefty down and in. You can't throw that pitch to them. I mean, I heard it, and, and it's weird you brought up Hershiser because Hershiser was a few years ahead of us, and he was kind of the man back then, and he was doing it. And you're going, well, he's doing it. Well, he's Oral Hershiser. He can do it. You can't do it. I'm like, well, okay, whatever. So, But uh, every time you did it, it worked. You know, I mean, it was no different than going away to a righty and it leaks over the middle and they hit that pitch out. That's kind of how I looked at it. You know, I mean, you do it to right handers and you give up home runs and there's nothing said. But if you do it to a lefty, well, then you're the dumbest guy in the world because you shouldn't be doing that in the first place. So, uh, yeah, it is kind of weird how that happens and how it changes as kind of the game goes on.
2: You see a lot of guys doing it now. I mean, I, I see yeah. pitchers emulating you to this day. I mean, we. And then yeah. we, there was another case too, you know, on the other side of the plate too, kind of the, you know, you developed a cutter too, to kind of go in, going yeah. on the lefties. And I remember, you know, John Burkett was with the brace for a while and he started throwing front door yep. cutters there for a while. Mm-hmm. Everybody was like, well, you can't throw that pitch. That's a hanger. But next thing you know, yeah. you've pitches. Up. yes, you locked up, just like you locked up lefties. You can lock up right-hand hitters on
0: the inside. You did, it, you did it with your slider. I remember you doing it to me with your slider. Every time you threw me a slider, like I thought you were going to hit me in the deck, and I suck it in. <laughs> it's on the outside corner. So, I mean, uh, yeah. That was an advantage, too, because we hit. So we knew what it was like to get up there and actually see the ball out of the pitcher's hand. And, and obviously, the hitters see a lot better than we do, and they hit better than we do. But you get a pretty good general idea of what, what works and what doesn't work just based on your failures as a hitter. So, I mean, you know, it works both ways.
1: Greg, when did you learn that changing speeds is more important than lighting up the radar gun?
0: Well, when you can't light up the radar gun, then you got to rely on something else. So it's, is you know, changing speeds is, you know, I learned pitching was locating your fastball and changing speeds That's simple whatever pitcher does it the best that day is going to win. It's, it's, it's not a speed contest. It's a pitching contest. And, and, you know, uh, Nolan Ryan's a good example. I think nobody threw harder than him, but he, he, he didn't go undefeated. You know Uh, there were pitchers that went out there and, and pitched better than he did and, and, and were able to win. So, you know, that was kind of always my out was usually the guy I was facing always threw harder than me but i figured well if i can outpitch him then i'll have a better opportunity to win because it's not a speed contest it's going to be a pitching contest i think the thing
1: though obviously fellow pitchers feel this way and maybe there's you know a hint of jealousy through some some of your peers that were playing during that time period but and watching you growing up it seemed effortless and i know it was not as easy as you make it look but when did you first think to yourself hey okay pitching definitely comes easier to me than it does for others
0: well I never really thought that you know I okay. think uh I think location makes you smart I think I was I was some guys are blessed with 95 cheese and and you know I think I was blessed with a little bit of, of just having better location you know uh can you learn to have better location absolutely just like you can learn to throw harder but I think some guys just locate better than others. Some guys throw harder, better than others. Coney, you had better break and than everybody else that played, it seemed like. You know, everybody was good at something. And, uh, you know, you just tried to work off your strengths as a pitcher.
2: Can you take us inside, you know, uh, the dynasty of the Braves, you know, whether it's Bobby Cox or Leo Mazzoni or, you know, what it was like. I mean, it seemed like every year. Yeah. You know, better have de- over a decade, like 15 straight years, you guys are the vision champs you probably, yeah. you know, if there's happenstance in postseason. You, probably, you could have easily been the guy that won five World Series titles. It just, you know, maybe if you had Mariano Rivera, you'd have about five or six rings on your finger right Man. now. it so, <laughs> be nice. Can, yeah, can you tell us uh, what, what that was like? I mean, uh, 15 I straight years.
0: Just for me, w- when I left Chicago and went there, just the mindset of, we're going to win the division. It, it, it was kind of a given. And uh, everything was geared towards that. Uh, we felt like, we had the pitching that over 160 game schedule was, was going to win. Uh, we played defense every night. We pitched every night. Uh, a lot of the nights we scored a lot of runs, but uh, we always had pitching and defense. You know, we, we kind of laughed around, you know, we joked a little bit, you know, we had Andrew Jones and Raphael for call. I mean, two of the best defensive players in the game. Uh, it seemed like every night we would make one or two plays and steal outs with, with just those two guys where the other team would give us an extra out or two. So, you know, we're, we're getting 25 outs and, you know, as we're hitting, we're getting 30 outs it seemed like. So uh, it just seemed like our, our, defense was a little bit above the rest of the league. I think every given night we played and I, I think it showed up over 160 games, uh, you know, postseason is a different beast. Everybody's playing good. Uh, other, other pitchers are hot as well at that time of the year. And, uh you know kind of sucks we only won one world series but you know it was nice going there like all 11 years I was in Atlanta and i think they went what 14 straight yeah i, think I, think it it, I thought it was like straight. that so you see they 14 went like, or 15
2: yeah
0: yeah two before 14. and another two after i left or something like that so it, it's pretty impressive what what they've been able to do you know that was a, lot, a lot of that was bobby's mindset you know bobby uh bobby was going to win with pitching and defense and and it was stressed and uh we played for the extra month of the season, and that started in spring training. Uh, we didn't overdo it in spring training. We did just enough to get ready for the season. We paced ourselves during the season because we knew we were going to have that extra month of, of in the postseason to go. You
2: know, a lot's been talked about, Leo Mazzoni, and throwing twice on the side in between starts, and sort of that mentality, that touch and feel mentality. Was, was that yeah. part, of, part of the field game that you developed in terms of command and
0: control you know i tried it uh glab did it a lot uh a couple guys did it uh i tried it uh kind of really wasn't for me you know i felt like i needed the rest more than i needed to feel and touch you know the, the the whole concept behind it is to is to throw with less effort so you can throw more and you know i i just felt like i would rather put a, just a little extra on it just to kind of stay more game situation as opposed to playing more catch on the mound, but uh, Glab swore by it. I saw Glab do it. He was good at it. Uh, Glab would go out there. I mean, I watched him throw a hundred pitches in the bullpen on the side and hardly broke a sweat. So, I mean, you know, it's there, it's, it's like all pitching advice you get. Some's good, some's bad. You know, you got to take what you like and throw away what you're not going to use.
2: Have you ever heard of a guy called the pitching ninja?
0: (laughs) pitching ninja
2: yeah he's a guy on twitter that uh and he's oh. got a youtube channel too and uh, he, he's got a great episode on you recently that talks about some of your legendary practical jokes in, in the oh yeah and- they're
0: probably <laughs> wise <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know how stories go over the years yeah. they, they get more stuff added on them <laughs> left and right but they're probably not true
2: <laughs> okay
0: well then what's the
1: one that that you know firsthand i guess that you're most proud of or at least the one that you can you can say here you could say anything on here but i don't even know
0: what he's talking about to even guess you know i mean you know as you know baseball you like you said a lot of downtime coney we're only out there for an hour every five days (laughs) (laughs) so um, you know a lot of it is trying to embarrass and humiliate your teammates and and stuff like that and uh you know, we had fun at it. Avery was good at it. Merker was good at it. You know, Smoltzy, Glab, all the guys chipped in were good at it. So we had fun picking on each other and, and just trying to offend one another the best we could.
2: That raunchy sense of humor. You know, I'll give yeah. you one of mine. I remember, you know, John Kruk with the Phillies. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, we, we met the, during the all-star game in 92 and the all-star game was in San Diego. And then after that, the Phillies came in to play the Mets and I sent, uh, what he thought was a box of baseballs over to sign, and it wasn't a box of baseballs. It was, it was a box of my crap. It was filled with
0: it was a Lincoln log about
2: that long into a box. Sent it over to him, and that's kind of raunchy sense of humor, right? I mean, that's that's what yeah. that's what baseball does to you. So he opened up the box, dropped it on the floor, stepped in it. It was a mess. The, the visiting clubhouse guy Tony just the sent me a bill to clean the carpet. I mean, it was uh, yeah, just, worth it. Worth it. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Legendary prank, stupid sophomoric, but you know something I still laugh about to this day. I'm sure you got a few of those
0: too. Yeah, there's a couple involved in stuff like that. I think <laughs> Gracie sent me over. Uh, he sent me over a picture to get signed, and it was him hitting a home run. And the, the bat boy mistakenly handed me the picture while I happened to be in the stall. He handed it under the stall, so you know what came back on the picture. <laughs> <laughs> I can
2: imagine. Yes. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you kind of do. We kind of do those things now. We probably get fired, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's,
2: it's, well, if, if you do it, you don't, you're not going to hear about it. That's for sure. So Yeah, I think it's probably a little different dynamic in that clubhouse, although yeah, yeah, you might be surprised.
0: Yeah,
1: Greg, one of the and this is something I guess both of you can attest to because one thing that you said moments ago was how you guys with the Braves during those '90s teams you prepared for that extra month. And David, I know. Players like Andy Pettit have gone on record saying the same thing. You train for seven, eight months. You don't train for that that six months. When you guys were playing you're going around the league, how many teams are not doing that every year?
0: Well, that's a good question. I know uh, – I think the good teams are doing it. I think the teams that expect to be there are doing it. You know, I think if you're, you know, 10, 15 games under 500, you probably can't wait for the season to end. You know, I had some seasons like that in Chicago – so, uh, you know, you do, you do prepare different. I think, you know, Atlanta, you always prepare for the post season. And I think, you know, we had like five years in Chicago where we prepared for the off season, you know, the last month of the season. So I think it's just, it depends where your team's at and how you go about it the last month of the season.
1: Speaking of those Chicago days, you Tom Glavin, was on this podcast about a month and a half ago, and he was talking about his, his struggles as a young pitcher. And he, he said that he kind of gained that signature blank demeanor that he had his whole career. He learned that, he, he brought that in, basically learning how to deal with the struggles that he had from losing 17 games. I think it was in 1988 off the top of my head. For you as a young pitcher, those first two years where you're trying to gain your footing, find your way in the big leagues, what was the biggest takeaway for you that kind of guided you for the rest of your career
0: well I mean I, I failed miserably my first year because I didn't change speeds properly and I, I knew that I knew that I knew my fastball was good my fastball was good enough uh, I wasn't executing my curveball my change up which had been my good pitch coming up through the minor leagues I, I somehow started throwing it wrong and uh, i wasn't able to 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 pitch slow well enough to stay in the big league so i knew i had to make adjustments that offseason i better learn how to pitch slower better or i'm going to be dealing blackjack for somebody here in vegas you know come the next year or two so uh you know went to winter ball worked on my changeup worked on my breaking ball worked on really not necessarily throwing a better breaking ball but just commanding the one i had better you know it's like uh my curveball wasn't very good but You know, if you can throw it knee-high or shin-high, it's going to be a pretty decent pitch for you.
1: And I remember you at one time watching a video showing some of your pitch grips. Nothing too complicated, right? It's it's all pretty much conventional pitch grips here. And I remember you pitching or gripping your change-up. You you have it with your thumb and your ring finger. And kind of where the fingers, the the other fingers fall, that's where they fall on the baseball. But obviously you said the biggest key to make the changeup look like the fastball, you you slow it down with your fingers and not your arm. So for some young pitchers that are are listening to this or watching this on the YouTube stream, trying to learn that changeup, trying to refine the pitch, for that to click for them, what would you tell them to work on first?
0: Well, the first thing you have to work on, I think, to have a good changeup is you have to have a good knee-high fastball. (laughs) You have to be able to throw your fastball knee-high and then throw your change up knee high off of that. And obviously it ends up for a ball. Hopefully you get a swing and a miss or you get the guy reaching forward or whatever. But uh, you know, there's, you know, having coached at UNLV the last couple of years and coaching younger players and all that, that, you know, you find out that the guys that can throw a low fastball can also throw a change up. And, you know, the guys that are constantly missing up and, and, in the strike zone with their fastballs. Their, their change-ups may be just as good at times, but they don't get the swings at them because they're not – the hitter's not seeing the fastball where it should be in order to throw a good change-up after that.
2: You know, the, the thing I've noticed from our days of pitching, obviously the strike zone, big issue in today's game in the major leagues. Now everything is uh, gearing towards maybe robot – robo-umpires or, you know, yeah. computerized-type strike zone. Uh, yeah, to me, you know – I. I, it almost seems inevitable that it's going that way. I, it, you lose a couple of nuances in, into that. And, you know, The consistency, the reward for the consistency of hitting the glove, umpires yeah. anticipating the flow. Um, and, and certainly the other thing is is the catchers. I know the pitcher-catcher relationship was important to you. How your kid, yeah. You had your catchers set up on behind home plate. You had a very definitive manner that you wanted done. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that, the strike zone, and then your relationship with catchers, the pitcher-catcher relationship?
0: Well, the relationship was very simple. I mean, I, I wanted my catcher to do two things. I wanted him to set up correctly, and I wanted him to try to hit a home run. That's all you got to <laughs> do. <laughs> I'll get the rest. Okay, but yeah. set up right's very important, and then you know, swing for the fence, go deep, knock in two or three guys. You know, and you know the strike zone. You know, I look at it kind of when we played. We might get four or five inches on one side of the plate or the other, not both sides. Maybe just one side. And now they're getting what a foot and a half higher than we got, you know? So I think I would like to think we, we would be good enough to adapt to that strike zone and maybe start throwing some higher cutters, you know, uh, some more higher fastballs. You don't have to throw 95 to pitch up there, you know, as long as you get it up there, uh, you know, you kind of work with what you got, you know, we had umpires. I thought I had umpires. I felt sometimes were pitching with me, you know, And they ran like you said, anticipating they're in the game. You know, I would ask them the umpire behind the mound all the time, "Hey, what do you think I should throw now?" You know, and they tell you, "Hey, hook them up, you know, bust them in." They would let you know. So, uh, you know, I always found that was kind of a good way to get involved. And you know, you might get them behind the plate five days later. Who knows? But uh, you know, the strike zones definitely changed. But I think the the pitchers what generation then are going to adapt to the strike zone, regardless of what it is.
2: It's a great point. I mean, the, the perception is, is that, you know, that, oh, the strike zone of the 90s and the 80s was enormous, and you guys got so many inches off the plate, but if we threw a pitch that the catcher caught at the mask, oh, the guard yeah. wouldn't even think about calling yeah. that a strike, yeah. so... We've we we never can. got anything that was belt-high or anything even close to
0: mm, just above the belt. Not even close. Not even close. They're getting freaking belt-high curveballs called right now.
2: Yeah, yes. <laughs> we get yelled at for throwing yeah. them. <laughs> right, right, exactly.
3: Hangers. Tony, you've talked about how, you know, it's like holding your phone sideways versus uh, upright. The, the yeah. new zone versus oh, yeah. the old zone.
2: This is the strike zone now. We have this as <laughs> the strike zone. You know? Exactly. It was, it was, um, exactly. You know, from horizontal to vertical so maybe it was that way for jim palmer back in the 70s late 60s i know you know that when the outside chest protectors and the home plate umpires had the big bubble chest protectors it was probably more like the strikes yeah. of the day like it was then but it, it merged into uh what we had what greg's talking about in the 90s where you know what we, you didn't get the inside corner but you get a little bit off the outside corner if you were consistent and that was the nuance you were rewarded for the better control that you had and umpires love that they'd sit back in the rocking chair They they'd know, know what to anticipate and uh you know they could get into the flow of the game and next thing you know it's like the naked gun you got umpires back there strutting and <laughs> calling strikes and they, you know that's it it, it, just the way it was and like Greg yeah. said you, you adjust as you go
0: yeah you have it figured out by the third or fourth inning usually you know
2: right you did and you and and the umpire had to figure it figured out too. What kind of night he was going to have, and it, it affected his mood as well. So the more consistent you were, the better mood he got into.
1: Greg, you figured it out more often than not. Big part of your game, obviously, changing speeds, locating pitches. But another big part is that, like the cere- cerebral nature that you brought to the mound each and every time out. The the intelligence and the and the psychological presence that you had. Overall, just like the overall gamesmanship that you possessed, that's something that really stood out to me as a young baseball fan watching you there. But when you think about all the technology that's available to players today, and back how you approached studying hitters, how did you do it? Was it was it all by your own observation?
0: Uh, uh your coaches helped you. Hitting coaches helped a lot. You know, I think uh, I, I would like to think I'd spent a lot of time talking to the hitting coaches you know especially uh they understood hitting and what the uh the other team's hitters could and couldn't hit and you know it was always nice to kind of sit next to them on the bench and, and just talk to them about hitters and uh you know we we watched a lot of video I was lucky enough to play in Chicago and Atlanta our games were on TV before all the other games were on TV you know back then so uh you know, every game we played, we had a VHS tape back in the day that we could always pop in and watch. But, uh, you know, you watch the video, uh, we didn't have all the fancy names and terms and everything for the pitch sequences that they do now. But, uh, you know, we, we, we had scouting reports. Uh, we made our own scouting reports. We listened to the advanced scouts. We, like I said earlier, we took some of it and some of it we threw away, you know, we trusted kind of what we saw more than what we read and, or or what we remembered of what happened with those hitters. And, you know, the month or two ago we faced them. So, uh, you know, all that kind of went into a play, but you know, the bottom line is if you throw the ball where you want to throw it, pitch selection is really not that big a deal, you know, as long as you're executing pitches. And I think, your pitch selection can cover you if you happen to make a mistake with that pitch. But if, if you execute the pitch where you're supposed to throw it, you're, you're, you're probably going to have success. Whether or not it's the right pitch or wrong pitch to throw.
2: That is the best advice that any young pitcher could hear was right there was the execution. The quality of the pitch is number one, you know, yeah. second guessing the selection. Oh, I should have thrown this pitch or that pitch, or, you know, how's my spin rate or, or whatnot. Yeah. You know, you know, the golf industry is the one. The golf industry is the you know the launch monitors. I know you've been on yeah. a launch monitor. That, yeah, all that technology is now the into the day. game now. <laughs> yes, exactly. So is your at your coaching level? You know, you mentioned you know on the college level at UNLV, um, are you using any of that equipment? The young guys are, are they receptive to the old school mentality?
3: Uh, yeah, they or? don't
0: have it there. They don't have it there. So it's yeah, it's all old school. It's all you know, it's 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 what do you do best throw your favorite pitch, do what you want to do, execute what you're comfortable throwing. And, you know, if you want to shake off, shake, go for it. You know, if you don't, you know, if I, if I want you to throw a fastball away and you don't want to throw it then don't throw it, go ahead and throw your curveball. I want you to throw what you want to throw and live and die by it.
1: There are some like legendary stories of, some of the, I don't know if you want to call it, psychological tricks that you had on opponents. I remember reading a story about how you, you kind of pitched Jeff Bagwell inside once and he, he took it for a home run, and that was in the regular season. But you, you knew that the Braves and the Astros were going to meet up in October virtually every postseason. That happened, and you weren't going to give Bagwell that pitch. He may be expecting it because he had success off of you with that pitch, but it wasn't there when the games really mattered. Gaining every type of edge like that, is that just your nature or did someone instill that in you?
0: Well, you know, Dick Paul, one of my early pitching coaches was uh, a big influence on me. And he, he asked me one day, he goes, what do you think hitters remember about you? And I just didn't know. I mean, I'm, you know, 21, 22 years old and he goes, they remember success. He goes, a hitter is not going to forget success. He goes, just listen to them talk in the dugouts or on the on the buses or on the plane. They're always talking about what they did good and, and who was pitching and what the pitch was and where they were and what the count was. And he goes, if a hitter has success off you, they're going to be looking for that pitch again. So, you know, I, I didn't really do it a lot during the season. I kind of messed around with it in spring training a little bit. And you would try to give guys a reason to look for a pitch off you. And, you know, knowing down the road, you're not going to throw it at least. I mean, at least not intentionally, you might throw it, but you don't (laughs) want to throw it. But uh, yeah, you want them, you, you want, if I know, if I know where your eyes are looking, then I think I have a big advantage to get you out. And you always kind of want to know where their eyes are looking before you throw the pitch.
2: Uh, Bait and switch. Yes. tried and true. It works every time. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Mound intelligence. And and then they get mad at you because you didn't challenge them.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly.
1: Greg, what are you telling some of the college pitchers or or younger pitchers and how they can improve their intelligence on the mound? Are are there, you know, some, you know, three quick things that they can do to improve that instantly?
0: Well, I mean, the easiest way is to learn by your failures. I think that's that's the easiest way to get better is, is to fail and and not, and not fail that way again. I mean, we, we've all failed on the field and uh, you have to understand why you failed. And when you get in that situation again, you have to try something else and and, and not fail the same way. I think that's just experience. You know, I think everybody's done it uh, and try to get better. I mean, really just make an honest effort to try to get better. And uh, you know, when you come to the ballpark, whether it's building a bun a little bit better or getting a bunt down or maybe learning something about one of your teammates, how to get him out in the, in the, in squad games, I think as long as you learn anything, that's going to make you just a little bit better next time you go out to the mound, I think you'll be ahead of the game.
1: James, you mentioned it before, how, how Greg went into the hall of fame with, you know, some of his, you know, one of his buddies and his manager, Bobby Cox, Tom Glavin, Hall of Fame announcements coming around the corner, Greg. And I think a lot of people are obviously wondering 10th year for Bonds, Clemens, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering when it comes to like the big names on the ballot that played during the steroid era, do, do Hall of Famers debate the same topics that the fans and the media argue over?
0: Uh, well, Probably. I mean, uh, you know, I think there's, as far as the steroids go, I, I, I think there's guys that are good enough to be in the hall of fame if they didn't take them. So I think they're okay. If they get in, I think there's guys that were only good because they took them. And then I think guys will have a problem with that. Now who's to say who's right, who's wrong or or who's taking them or whatever. I mean, that's all, you know, who knows what was going on back then, but, uh, I would like to see Andrew Jones get in personally. You know, I think uh, Ozzy Smith 100% deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. He was the greatest defensive shortstop to ever play. And, you know, I feel like Andrew Jones. I mean, we watched him in Atlanta. I mean, I did for 10 years down there, and it was incredible what he did defensively with his glove. I know his offensive numbers are almost good enough if not good enough. But defensively, there was, there was nobody better. I mean, we, 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 we laughed at places on the field where you saw him make a play in the third inning, and then the seventh inning, he's literally 200 feet over on the other side of the field making a play. I mean, it was the ground he covered out there was incredible.
2: Yeah, all the singles he stole, right? Or, or right yeah. up the middle because he played shallow and he could come in and he could still yeah. get back and cover back mm-hmm. as well. So
0: still save doubles hard. and triples.
2: Yeah. It's hard <laughs> to put a number on that, how many hits he you know? saved.
0: We were playing in New York one day, Coney, and I think uh is it Brian McRae was your center fielder? Yes. He was in center fielder in left center, there was like a 396 sign over there on the wall. Yes. And one of our guys hit a ball underneath that 396 and he went flying back. I mean, hauling assholes and elbows, reached out at the last second. I mean, slammed into the wall. I mean, it was freaking Sports Center play of the night. I mean, it was incredible play. And literally two innings later, their guy hit the same ball. And Andrew goes running back right in front of the 396 and he turns around and just, it was routine. I mean, it was like, and we just said, there it is again. That's the difference right there. I mean, One guy, it's a highlight reel, and the other guy, it's routine. We see it every night.
2: It's such a great point. You know, defense is finally, I think, because of some of the new metrics and war, for example, you know, with the defensive component thrown into your ranking, Mm -hmm. I think we're finally getting it. You know, there had to be a better way to measure defense rather than just fielding percentage or the old school way to measure defense. And one, one of the things I really love about some of the new metrics is that put a number on what Andrew Jones meant or. Ozzie Smith or or pick a pick a player, you know, the defensive component, how much that saved pitchers like you and me uh, matters, matters so much.
0: Exactly. I remember Andrew was uh, hitting like a buck 80 when he first came up. And it was about a month into the season. And I heard Bobby tell him, Bobby goes, I don't care if you ever get a hit. He goes, you're saving us two or three runs a night just with your glove. Any, th- any run you knock in is a bonus. So, I mean, I mean, it kind of put things in perspective. Of course, after that, he started hitting, but, <laughs> you know.
2: Yes. It was some pop, too. So, yeah, I agree oh, yeah. with you. He's it definitely – uh, yeah. that's a – you know, when you just know. I mean, they, he's got that feel, you know, even without the numbers, because we watched him play so many years. But you just knew you were watching Hall of Famer. So, I could yeah. not agree more. There's so many players. I think the key – for our generation, as it feels like compared to you know back to the turn of the century that our generation's underrepresented in terms of just overall players that get in. And so yeah, Andrew Jones is a perfect example of that. Uh, along the way, there's, it, it seems like the, the bar's getting higher as, as we we move further further along in the history of the game. Where uh, hey, what about these guys from the 80s and 90s? And that that particular group is is underrepresented in my mind.
3: Yeah. No, it, it is, and it's it's backed up with the uh, the the number of uh, players inducted um, out of players who played ten years in the big leagues or pitched for ten years in the big leagues. How many of them are getting into the Hall? And it is a lot less. And Andrew Jones, he's someone who it's surprising that he's gotten as little support as he has. One just on the defensive end, so defensive runs saved, the the fielding portion in WAR, he has he has two hundred thirty five uh, fielding runs, which is fourth. All time behind Brooks Robinson, Mark Belanger, and Ozzie Smith, three all-time great defenders, and, and Jones' highest among outfielders. But he also he, he wasn't just a, an all-glove, no bat kind of guy. He had 434 home runs, and he had a good eight-year run where he averaged 35 homers and 100 ribbies. So what what more do you want out of a center fielder?
1: Well, I think the the numbers that were you know the new information, the new stats that we have here only strengthen a guy like. Andrew Jones's case obviously and look when regardless that he played with him when an inner circle hall of famer vouches for a guy out there take a closer look right I mean Andrew Jones deserves more recognition I think James is right he's not getting enough play and you know you, you see different varying reasons why but it's overall it does make you scratch your head a little bit
2: yeah, you know, there's another chance, you know, the Veterans Committee, there's a lot of uh, a lot of writers, a lot of people taking second looks with more information nowadays, and I applaud that, uh, I think it's good, and giving credit where credit's due, it's really what it's about, you know, I don't care what the metric is or what the numbers are, find a way to give credit where credit is due, so Mad Dog's right, uh, he had the, he's a, he's a guy who's one of the greatest pitchers ever, Greg Maddox, talking about his center fielder, you might want to listen, <laughs> you might want to hear that.
0: Yeah, maybe I'll get on the Veterans Committee for that one
1: there you go yeah, that helps <laughs> greg uh last one before we let you go and look david james I, they work for the S yes network i work for the yankees well i have yankee ties here something that we we need to know how close were you to signing with the yankees after the 92
0: season oh i was there i went there to sign with the yankees i mean i was shocked i didn't get offered a contract i mean i went i went there i mean i I mean, it's not college. I didn't go there just for a recruiting trip. I mean, you kind of go there to to sign the contract and everything. And, uh, uh, you know, had the nice day, went around, went to a show, went to dinner. And, you know, they said, we'll be in touch with a contract offer. And uh, I've heard bits and pieces over the years, but I don't know who it was. But some of the higher ups, one of the guys had a heart attack. And that's why I wasn't made an offer. And uh, Gene Michaels was the GM at the time. Steinbrenner was out of baseball; he was on he was suspended, I think, at the time. And whoever was calling the shots then, who I sorry, I don't remember who it was. uh, Apparently, had a heart attack, so I didn't have a uh, contract offer. So I got on the plane, went home. Uh, We had a layover in Chicago. There were no cell phones then. Okay. So it wasn't like you can just, you know, use the phone whenever you wanted. And I remember landing in Chicago and calling Scott and uh, he said, the Braves were able to make you an offer, which originally was the team I wanted to go to earlier before I went to New York and they weren't able to make trade a player and and have room for me. So then I was off to New York to go play there. And uh, for some reason they came in with an offer and, I told Scott, do your do your Boris stuff and I'm, i I want to play in Atlanta and you know hopped on the plane and three hours later I landed back in Vegas and had an offer from the Braves and uh never officially received an offer from the Yankees. Gene Michaels did call me and say, What you haven't heard our offer? We're gonna make you an offer. You can't, you know, you can't sign with them yet. But uh, you know, at the time I wanted to win, and this was 92, 93. And the Braves had been to the postseason twice and they had a good young team, a lot of good pitchers and uh, did want to stay in the National League. You know, I'd much rather face the pitcher than a DH any day of the week <laughs> Again, twice on Sunday. And uh, and I enjoyed hitting and playing and being a baseball player. You know, I didn't want to go to the American League and just pitch. Gene was your first manager, right? In the big leagues. He was.
1: Yeah,
0: he was. Uh, yep. uh,
1: David. You you said it before when you were a free agent when you know when, when you wanted to get a deal done obviously George wasn't around in '92 but when you wanted to get a deal done you dealt with George even from a hospital payphone like he did with you.
2: That's a great story. i would never heard that before. So see, you, you got some, you got a breaking story there, right? You know, Gene Michaels. Like, no, I know wanted Greg so badly, but it was tough. It was. You know, as Greg said, you know, Steinbrenner was out. I remember I was a free agent that year, too. Greg and yeah. I both signed that same year, and Barry Bonds, too, as well, in 92. Mm-hmm. and I, The winter meetings were in Louisville, Kentucky that year, and I went and knocked on the Yankees' door, and they were scrambling inside. I think Buck Showalter was in there, and they were going, it's calling, it's calling, should we answer? What do we do? And I just started knocking on doors. I knocked on the Royals' door, and Ewing Kaufman, the late great owner, Called me in his room and said, "I'm going to give you nine million dollars up front." And I was, okay, let's go. Where do I sign? I was just like, Greg. You know, the contract was there. And other were, you know, the Yankees couldn't make a deal; they, they couldn't make an offer. And uh, yeah, from that point on, I'm like, "Okay, I am going to go home. Go home to Kansas City." And that's how I ended up with the Royals. That's how Greg ended up uh, with the Braves, and Barry Bonds ended up in San Francisco with the Giants.
1: Knocking on hotel doors at the winter meetings—that's like that's reality TV in 1992. Major Just League strong. Baseball missed out, on, yeah, Just, they made, they missed out on, yeah, they may missed out on airing that footage. That is awesome. Let them know
0: you're serious about playing there, huh?
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Greg, this was amazing. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. Uh, it was great catching up, and um, we lo- love all these stories. And uh, look, you know, you see some of the big contract, the big free agent deals right now. Going to take a lot to dethrone. Uh, in my opinion, the greatest free agent deal of all time with uh, with Greg Maddox and the Braves after that 92 season. So uh, Thank you. congratulations again uh, on all your success, and, and thanks for spending some time with us here. Absolutely. Enjoy
0: talking ball with you guys.
2: Thanks, man. Thank Much appreciated, brother.
0: All right, Coney, we'll see you, man. We'll see you down the road somewhere. David, I know you are a huge proponent of
1: kind of intertwining the new age metrics with some of the guys that, pitched and and didn't have those i want to call them luxuries right some of the measurements some of the tools and some of the stats that tell us more of a story about how they were when they were on the mound i'm wondering what's a stat or a measurement that we have today that you think would have illustrated greg's career when he was pitching to the max yeah I,
2: once again um i you know, I, I keep using Mariano Rivera as a comp, you know, and even though he was a short man, but you know, the the combination of velocity movement and precision that Mariano had, I see with Greg Maddox on the starting side. Um, When he first came up with the Cubs, he threw in the low to mid nineties. I saw him finish a game, a nine inning game throwing the ball 94 miles an hour that had incredible movement on it. So I would love to see the numbers on Greg Maddox in terms of, uh, his horizontal and vertical movement on a sinker. I think he would be well above the league average. You know, is it, We sort of measure, uh, he has four inches more more break uh, horizontally on his two-seam fastball than the league average. I think Greg Maddox would be at the top of the list. You watch some of the pitches on, on, on YouTube or wherever you can get video of Greg Maddox, and you're seeing pitches that start at the left-handed batter's hip and end up getting a lot of the plate. Tremendous horizontal movement. Sometimes the sinker had both horizontal and vertical movement, meaning downward tilt to his pitches. So just the measurement on the movement on his pitches were ridiculous. Uh, I would have loved to seen those. Uh, you know, obviously we didn't, we don't have, we didn't have that back then, those t- type of metrics, but Greg Maddox was nasty, even though he doesn't get credit for being nasty when you combine movement, velocity and precision, that is nastiness. Uh, you know, we tend to think, Oh, it wasn't 99 miles an hour. It wasn't a hundred miles an hour. It didn't have, you know, riding action that jumped off the, you know, jumped uh, through the hitter and he swung through it. Uh, Maddox was nasty, uh, without a doubt. And if you talk to all the hitters that faced him, they'll say the same thing.
1: I'm curious about this because we we don't, we don't, we, I think we need to have a segment here in, in the near future and maybe more toward the beginning of the regular season where we kind of list a bunch of the stats that, you know, we have take, take as many as we need and, and kind of, you know, in your eyes, are they overrated underrated or perfectly rated in terms of how much you value them? And, cause I, I was about to ask both of you guys, like, what do you, what do you guys think of, of win probability added, are you a fan? Do you think it's overrated, underrated, perfectly rated? Because Greg Maddox is third all time in win probability added. And I, I like the stat, but I'm curious what your thoughts about it are.
2: I'll defer to James Smythe first, and then I'll piggyback up with him since he usually makes us smarter when he talks. So The floor is yours, James.
3: Okay, yeah, I'll I'll take it. Um, I like it a lot. Now, Maddox specifically, part of it is it's a counting stat, like games or war or anything, where the more you pitch or hit, the more you will accrue. Now, Maddox threw a ton of innings, but for him to be third on that list shows what an incredible pitcher he was. Now, just a little more abstractly with win probability added, I like it because Coney you say this all the time, give credit where credit's due. Mm -hmm. So theoretically we have an inning where, you know, leadoff guy gets a single second guy hits a double. Now we got second and third, third guy sack fly run comes in. Now the leadoff guy, he scores a run. He gets credited with a run. The third guy gets the sack fly. He gets credited with an RBI because he scored, he brought in the run. The guy who had the biggest impact on the inning the guy who hit the double to set up the runner and scoring position and everything, we don't really have anything in the traditional stats to to give credit on his impact on the game other than he's credited with a double. Win probability added gives him the bulk of of the credit there because he shifted the inning from a runner at first, nobody out, all of a sudden it's second and third, nobody out, they're in a much better position to score. So you add up all these little plays over hundreds and hundreds of times in a season and you get win probability added That can also be used to sort of give a a guy how clutch was a guy this season, right? You see who, who were high, who was low. So it's, it's it's a good way to, it's a new age stat, but it's kind of rooted in like an old school station to station kind of thinking.
2: Yeah, it is true. And you know, where it really impacts the game too, is in the bullpen bullpen usage that we've seen change over the years from the Tony Larusa slotting. You're my seventh inning guy. You're my eighth inning guy. You're my closer. Everybody pitches one inning too. Oh, by the way, um, that strikeout that that guy got in that your reliever got in the seventh inning was really the turning point in the game. That was the highest leverage spot that probably saved the game for you there. That's where win probability added can come in and show you that, uh, you know, Hey, base is loaded. Uh, We brought in Jeff Nelson, who struck out two guys in a row and saved the game right there. And, oh, yeah, Mariano pitched to the bottom of the order in the bottom of the ninth with a three-run lead and got credit with the save and nothing against Mariano, greatest ever. But the seventh inning where Jeff Nelson struck out two guys was the game. That was where the win probability, the most win probability was added. That's one thing I like about it on the pitching side, especially in the bullpen, that has impacted modern-day bullpen usage, rightly so. The highest leverage spots should be used with your best relievers. Uh, and, and saving somebody because he's the traditional close traditional closer for the ninth inning that might not come uh, you know it's kind of a you know for, for a lot of thinking in, in today's game it's kind of a thing of the past
3: the top five in the major leagues this year in win probability added number one josh hater 4.8 uh, so that's 4.8 wins worth of games that's getting credited to him based on each out and base runner he allowed josh Hader number one max scherzer number two walker bueller number three fourth rice el Glacius with the angels and jordan romano so i like it's a good it's a good mix of starters and relievers
1: i like that i i hear the the people who talk about the longevity factor of how you know you're just there and you're you're continuing to it's a it's a Like James said, it's a counting type. You you continue to kind of accrue, but you got to be in those positions. And if you are in those positions for as long as you know a guy like Greg Maddox is in, that's one. The second thing is that you know you you may not deliver, period. So there is a a clutchiness to it. It's a matter of how much you delivered in a big situation or in any situation. If you're if you're unfamiliar with with win, probably added really quickly, measures how much a player impacts a game he's playing in it's got like an influencer stat right it's how much a guy uh, contributes to the team winning and how often they come through in big situations and and greg maddox third all-time among pitchers all right this week in pitching history james what do you have for us
3: all righty january 22nd 1929 that's 93 years ago on saturday the Yankees announced that they're going to put numbers on the backs of their uniforms. That's a first. So in 1916, the Indians experimented. They had numbers pinned on their sleeves. That only lasted a few weeks. Cardinals did something similar in 1923 that didn't stick either. So in the 1929 offseason, 93 years ago, this, uh, this week, they said that they were going to put numbers on the backs of their uniforms. The Indians came out and said they were going to do the same thing for the upcoming season in 29. And the Yankees were going to be the first team to do it, but their opening game got rained out, so the Indians got uh, got tabbed as the first team to wear numbers on the backs of their uniforms. It caught on pretty quickly because by 1937, every MLB team uh, was doing it, and now I, I, the numbers become so synonymous with a player. And I, I don't know if you guys do this because I do. Like if I'm trying to remember a phone number or a, or a string of numbers, a six, seven, eight-digit number, I start to to block them off and like, okay, 41, that's Tom Seaver. Okay. 36, that's David Cohn. And I, and I kind of patch it together that way. I wonder if you guys do the same thing.
1: You're not the first person who I've heard do this. I've never done it personally, but it, it's, it's a common thing among sports fans. It's definitely something that they, it's a moniker that they use on a monik device. Right.
3: Right. And Cody, you wore seven numbers in your big league career. You
1: can make 13. your own phone number.
3: Yeah, 13 with the Royals, 44 and 17 with the Mets, 11 with the Blue Jays, back to KC, 17 and 22, to the Yankees, 36, 36 with the Red Sox, and then 16 in that last stint with the Mets.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's part of the problem, right? I bounced around too much. I mean, it's hard to get identified with any one franchise when you bounce around that much, but collectively, my career in New York was 12 years, so. Six years with the Mets, six years with the Yankees. I'm pretty proud of that part. I feel pretty lucky to have spent the majority of my career in New York. But the numbers thing is interesting because a lot of times you'll see baseball players or sports sports players do commercials, and they won't be able to use the logo because the you know the owners own the logo. The when in, the in, uh, interlocking interlocking N Y is owned by the Yankees. Mm-hmm. Uh, pinstripes is all the. That's been uh, legislated a little bit whether the Yankees own the actual pinstripes or not. I don't think that's ever been solved, but they certainly own the logos. So I've done commercials for teams where, you know, it was just my number and then the logos blacked out. So the players, that's one way that the players can be identified. If you see a number two in pinstripes, who are we we talking about? Forever, right? It's Derek Jeter forever. And the list goes on and on. Uh, You know, if you, a number four in green and gold in Wisconsin, you think about Brett Favre. So you know, the numbers became an identifier for the players, um, sans the logo, which are owned by, by the franchise owners themselves.
1: I think that's why you have the interlocking JM logo on uh, on the Tone of the Slap podcast. There you right? go. Exactly. <laughs> While we're on this subject, one of your former teammates, your good friends, Keith Hernandez, is getting his number 17 retired by the Mets this coming season. And I know you wore 17 in honor of Keith once he left the Mets. And this news got me wondering what it was like. Was it hard for you to approach Keith and, and ask him if you could wear his number? I know it was kind of out of respect for him, but was there any trepidation? What was that conversation like for you and Keith? It
2: was, it was back during a time when you know, people weren't really talking about retiring his number. It was still fairly fresh. He had just left the team and uh, he was very receptive and very honored that I, that I was going to do that for him. Just, just to kind of keep, uh, it, it was the way in which it was done. I think uh, that that he appreciated, and I think Mets fans understood that I'm doing this in honor of Keith Hernandez. Uh, I only wore it for one year, actually half a year. Ended up getting traded from the Mets to the Blue Jays. So, you know, I, th- I think it's the intention. I did it. I did the same thing in Kansas City uh, when I wore number 22. Uh, that was for Dennis Leonard, one of the great all-time franchise pitchers uh, for the Royals, and a guy who I. Kind of idolized growing up. That's I tried to throw his slider. Dennis Leonard was a great Royals pitcher and somebody who influenced me as a kid growing up in that area. So, you know, that, that was part of it. I think it's the intention. You know, you're doing it to honor somebody. You're not doing it to usurp them or to take their number and try to take it over. It, it, was, it was done uh, with, with good intentions all the way.
1: Dennis Leonard had one of the most pronounced facial hair designs of the mid to late 70s. And you, you look back at some of the rivalry battles between the Yankees and the Royals and, and Dennis letter was always that big threat, right. Uh, on the, on the pitching mound. You, uh, you opted for the number though, not the intense sideburns, huh?
2: I can't, I can never grow the chops or, or the, or the mustache either. They came all the way down, but he, you know, if you look back at that, that era in the seventies, everybody had the chops going the long burns coming down the sideburns. You know, who even had chops back then? You got to look it up. George Steinbrenner. Had some chops. If you, if you see some old Your... 70s pictures, even though we've got the, the facial hair thing with the Yankees and the, the length of the hair, uh, hit me up on Twitter if you can find some old George Steinbrenner pictures of him with the big chops on the side. They're, it's pretty remarkable that that was in, in <laughs> vogue in the 70s. Yeah,
1: like the 90 degree cut on the back burn, part of the burn, and then like the 45 acute angle on the front. <laughs> Yes. Uh, yeah
2: just letting it go getting a little bushy let those sidebirds <laughs> grow down a little bit yeah I mean if you, I could never do it I, I still can't even you know this is a week right here I can't even get <laughs> anything going right now so
1: <laughs> oh all right let's uh let's go to three up three down here let's close the show out three things that we like to give a little extra attention to one storyline around baseball from each of us James what do you have
3: Uh, A remembrance of Eddie Basinski, rest in peace, Eddie Basinski, 99 years old, he passed away a former Brooklyn Dodger during World War II, and a classically trained violinist, longtime Pacific Coast League player, and a few weeks back I mentioned Van Lingle Mungo, that song by Dave Frischberg, who named all these players from the 30s and 40s and 50s, and the entire lyrics of the song were ballplayers. And Basinski was the last surviving player named in that song. Eddie was the second oldest uh, living MLB player. Uh, the number one spot belongs to the aptly named George Elder, who is 100 years old and the former Fordham Ram ball player, uh, played 41 games with the St. Louis Browns in 1949. Now, back to Basinski, he would play his violin in the Dodger clubhouse. Coney, did you have?
2: some uh, some musically talented uh, teammates in your club houses? Well, obviously, everybody knows about Bernie Williams, one of the greats, all-time classically trained guitar, back to school. He's on tour now in Westchester County, all over the country, really. So if you want to see Bernie live, it's a great show. He is absolutely legit, actually has some Grammys. I think he was awarded a couple of Grammys for his work. Uh, uh, you know, another one was when I was traded to the Yankees in 95, Jack McDowell, blackjack was a big time musician Uh, actually uh, fronted a band called stick figure that, that put out uh, a couple of albums. I don't know if, you know, if they were critically acclaimed or not more of the uh, alternative punk kind of genre. So, but he was legit. Jack McDowell took it very seriously and Paul O'Neill playing the drums. You could hear Paul O'Neill play the drums all the time. He had his own drum set in the bowels of Yankee stadium in one of the side rooms down there. So yeah, Paul, it was a big part of it, you know, and then when David Wells pitched on the days he pitched, uh, he wasn't necessarily a good musician. He loved music, but he got that whole clubhouse into Metallica. We knew what day David Wells was pitching because the whole clubhouse was filled with Metallica. And he turned turned to players that were country, turned some players that were rhythm and blues uh, kind of guys and their, their, their taste into Metallica fans, including Joe Girardi. Joe Girardi to this day is a Metallica fan. Can you believe that? Joe Girardi <laughs> loves Metallica uh, because of David Wells. And uh, you know, that was 1998. At the end of the year, we had 125 wins and 50 losses. And uh, David Wells blasting Metallica in the clubhouse was kind of kind of the thing I remember the most about that year. That's how Mariano got into "Man, right?" Yes, exactly.
1: It's the greatness built off the uh, the hard metal when when um you had Bernie and O'Neill, Bernie playing the the guitar. Paul O'Neill playing the drums were they jamming amongst themselves and whatever you were hearing, you were hearing, or did they, did they take player requests? Did you guys uh, have the chance to ask them to play a certain thing and, and that's how they provided the entertainment or was it just them jamming and, and doing their own thing?
2: You know, I think for Paul O'Neill it was more, he was on his own. He used it to warm up he used it to kind of, you know, clear his mind. It was a way for him to go back to a room by himself and, and play the drums it's not like you could have a drum set in front of your locker you know and and play the drums in the clubhouse you kind of had to have a spot for that Uh, but Bernie would have his guitar out in front of his locker absolutely and be strumming his guitar and absolutely would play for you you could talk to him and that's the kind of guy Bernie Williams was one of my all-time favorites just as a human being Bernie Williams one of the nicest smartest guys uh, and talented people that was kind of quiet and reserved and 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 sort of got a reputation for being maybe a little bit aloof or a little bit, you know, uh, distracted at times. Uh, you know, that's Bernie being Bernie. But Bernie, Bernie was one heck of a cat, one one cool cat. And uh, yeah, he, he would play in front of his locker all the time. It, it was fun just to watch Bernie, you know, whatever he was doing before a game with a guitar in his hands.
1: As far as people, they often keep their thoughts to themselves, right?
2: <laughs> exactly, Bernie was that guy. Bernie Bernie uh, has a legitimate second career going right now as a as a very good musician.
1: Yeah, he's uh, he's performed obviously, like you said, at venues all over the country. But also, he's a uh, he's a fixture around ballparks too, which is really cool to see. He'll he'll perform in Cooperstown Hall of Fame weekend, does some stuff at the stadium uh, during the season and stuff. So he's you know it's not hard to find Bernie and his guitar even these days. Um, I want to give a shout out, a little love, and we don't do this so often, three up, three down. But I, I think I need to give some props here to the Baltimore Orioles, and and just say, look, I see you guys. You know, they are the the doormat of the American League at the moment. But if you did not hear yet, they're doing a lot of uh, doing a lot of things that signal improvement. That could be right around the corner in my opinion like if you didn't hear that they've pushed their uh, their their left field fence back at camden Yards, they're doing it they're pushing it back 27 feet they're raising the left field wall from um, 7 feet to 13 feet and they're adding to the quirkiness among baseball stadiums in major league baseball because there's going to be this 90 degree angle in the fence that is facing toward left field it's not out toward the bullpen or the stands. It's facing toward the field of play. So Camden Yards, I don't think people look at it as some type of ballpark that has a lot of quirks in it. They also they, you know, they think of it as the trendsetter, so to speak. But I like that thought about baseball, how no feels the same. You know, you have Fenway Park with the pesky pole. You had Towes Hill in Houston. There's a there's a bunch of different things, different quirks around baseball. I think this is cool that they are putting this in here they're obviously not doing it for that. Mainly they're doing, and this is why I think they deserve props. They're, they're doing all this to kind of help entice free agent pitchers to hopefully be more willing to come to Baltimore. That means they're kind of willing to spend, so to speak. Right. I kind of like that strategy. And I also read how they made a huge effort in strengthening their international presence through the signing period that just began The Orioles spent their full allotted bonus money for international prospects, which is just above $6 bucks. That is not something you could be saying about the Baltimore Orioles over the last several years. So this is definitely a huge improvement. They have a bigger presence on the international market. It was something that their GM, Mike Elias, said that they would have when, when he first took over. And you're seeing that now. You're seeing their prospects starting to take off. Grayson Rodriguez, top pitching prospect in the game. Adley Rutschman, everyone knows about him as the as you know the former number one overall pick. Baltimore Orioles, they're on the right path here. I think they're going to be a bigger nuisance for teams in the American League than most people think. They're an organization on the rise, in my opinion.
2: It's an interesting change because if you know the the dimensions of Camden Yards, they have the stacked bullpens on top of each other. So, you know, the home bullpens, the lower one, the visitors bullpens, the the upper one. so that you can't really move the bullpen. So if you're going to move the left field fences back, you're going to have to create that kind of a right angle that you were referring to, Justin, so – you know, maybe you'll have uh, some some robbed home runs along the side of that wall where you reach over the bullpen and pull one back. So it, it remains to be seen how it plays. Exactly. I could see high fly balls that are caught in that little right angle that a little bit to the right. It's in the bullpen for a home run a little bit to the left. you're camp for a, a, can of, a can of corn kind of fly ball might create some some interesting uh, angles and plays there. Uh, you know, I, I'm trying to visualize it. Yeah, I see what you're doing. I see what they're trying to do. You know, it, nowadays you you can you can go to technology and do the overlay on fly balls and show every fly ball that would have been a home run that's now not going to be a home run. So you're well informed on your decision making in terms of design nowadays, as opposed to back then when you were when Camden Yards was built, you were kind of guessing how it would play. You know, now you know exactly how it's going to play, depending on which baseball they're using. You know, at the, at the right time, obviously, but a lot of variables involved. It's going to be interesting to see change at Camden Yards. The, I hope it's not just change for the sake of change. We'll, we'll see that it enhances the ballpark and the way it plays, but it remains to be seen. And I'm with you, Justin. I mean, I applaud the Orioles for trying trying something new. Uh, the proof's in the pudding. We'll, we'll see how it works out because they really they really need to change something there to change the whole dynamic of of the perception of that franchise right now.
1: Right, sitting there thinking that something's just going to turn and the cycle's going to turn. That's obviously not going to work. It's not going to get you through your tough times. They're taking action. So I applaud them for that. And you know, they, they, like we mentioned, Adley Rushman, Grayson Rodriguez, there are others. They have some young pitching there. John means obviously right now at the head of that rotation, a very talented pitcher. There's, there's talent there. I mean, even get to their position players. So I think they're going to be a a little bit more of a headache than, you know, maybe they do lose their 90 games. Right. But I think that it's going to be tough to, to you know that they're going to come and compete every night is what i'm trying to say from from that that young talent that the players possess it's something you know that's that innate ability and i think that they're going to be on the right track here all right guys we want to thank greg maddox for joining us here this week dan dan Rourke, our great producer we thank him as well pulling off the magic each and every week you guys have anything exciting going on this this next week with the NFL playoffs, some some other things going on? I know, David, your Chiefs put out an impressive performance over the Steelers. Anything you're locked into this week?
2: Well, Chiefs and Bills are the story. I mean, Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, they, they're on a collision course. Both teams were dominant in their performances in the first round. So, yeah, I mean, you talk about uh, two potentially great teams matching up. Kansas City's lucky it's at, at, at you know in, at Arrowhead in Kansas City because to face that Bills Mafia up in Buffalo and the <laughs> weather you know you know what you're gonna get I I see that as advantage Chiefs but both teams are hitting on all cylinders right now it's kind of the way we thought it was gonna be even though both teams struggled at different points during the regular season you know, Chiefs Chiefs and Bills uh, that's a must watch game right there with two great young quarterbacks two great teams.
1: Yeah, being at Arrowhead, I don't think you have to worry about some of the weird crap being thrown into the end zone like we saw on a, on Saturday night in Buffalo, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, guys. Um, thanks again to Greg Maddox. Thank you to our, our great producer once again, Dan work. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe. It is the best way that you can support the show here. You don't want to miss anything we do. New episodes every Tuesday. And some bonus content sprinkled in as well. Tone of the Slab pitching with David Cohn is a production of John Boynton Media. We will talk to you next week, everybody. Take care.